0: This morning, we are in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. Let's go there. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, by whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of, the, of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law.
1: Well, hey, good morning. Uh, Good to be with you. My name is Nate, one of the pastors here, uh, whether you're here in person or on your couch, maybe still in your PJs at home, uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Well, two words, but now. Those two words, it's been said, might be the most important words in this letter. That's how our passage begins, but now. So here's your English grammar lesson for you this morning. Uh, But now is a conjunction, and it's used to contrast what has already been mentioned. So think about this in real-life circumstances. Has somebody ever said this to you? I was just about ready to give up on this relationship, but now. Those two words in that sentence, in that context, are the sweetest words, right? Because you know what came before is in contrast to what's coming, And these two words in our text, but now, have been preceded, if my math is correct, by 65 verses and four sermons with phrases like this, Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. But now... Or Romans 2, verse 12, For all have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. But now... Or how about Romans 2, 10 11, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. But now... Or right before this verse, verse 21, verse 20 says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now. Or to summarize all of that, it's what Case said last week when he said, I'm not okay. And you're not okay. But now. But now, the rest of verse 21 says this: "The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law." The contrast to what has preceded this section is all summarized in that, in that verse when it says, "The righteousness of God." That's the contrast. So three things this morning. First of all, what does that mean? Okay, What does that mean, the righteousness of God? Secondly, where is it found? And then thirdly, how do we get it? So what does it mean? Where is it found? And how do I get it? Let me pray and we'll get in. Father, we pray this morning uh, that you would... Help us understand these verses, and that you would work them into the very center and grounding of our life, that we might live from this, that it would transform us and that it would change us. We ask you, by your Spirit, to apply this to our lives today. Amen. Amen. Well, what does it mean you know, when you think about the word righteousness, we don't really use that word a lot these days. In fact, probably the one time you hear it is when you put the word self before it, self-righteous. So when we, we use it, honestly, it's usually a negative connotation. But righteousness biblically means something like this. It's a, it's a norm or a standard. It's actually used in the Old Testament literally to be used as accurate weights and measures. And here, in the context of relationships, specifically in relationship to God, it means conformity to what is right or expected. So listen for a moment. Paul says, but now, a righteousness of God has been manifested. What Paul's saying is, but now, there's a conformity to what is right or expected in a relationship to God That has now been revealed. And notice he says, apart from the law, because this is important. Remember, everything that's been said previously is no one's righteous. No one's actually met the mark. So what Paul's trying to do, he's trying to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the place where it's revealed. Does that make sense? It's it's so vital you understand this. He says, the righteousness of God, it's a It's a performance. It's a standard. It's conformity. And Paul's saying, you can't do it. You didn't do it. But it's been manifested. There's a place where you can look and it's found. So, where is it found? We'll look at verses 22 through 24. Paul says this The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now we're going to unpack this, but I want you to know something very simply. The righteousness of God in this passage, all the neon signs are pointing to Jesus. This is where the standard, the conformity, it's all found. It's all revealed. This is where it's been manifested. It's all found in a person. It's all found in Jesus. Not in yourself, but in Jesus. All the floodlights are on him. <clears throat> and Paul takes us to two venues, two rooms we might understand this. And The first is this. Paul brings us <clears throat> to a courtroom. In verse 24, when Paul uses the language, when he says, you are justified, that's courtroom language. Jerry Bridges um, defines it this way, to be justified is to be absolved from any charge of guilt and to be declared absolutely righteous. In other words, um, he he puts it this way. It's kind of like two sides of the same coin. On one side, it's being declared not guilty before a judge. The other side is being declared positively righteous. So Paul is saying this. There is a righteousness, a perfect standard, a perfect standing met and it's through faith in Jesus that you can actually have it. Now, we'll talk about faith in a moment, but we have to pause here because I hope you're starting to understand the problem. Do you feel the tension for a moment here? Maybe you don't, but, but think about it this way. Kids, there's some kids in the room here, right? Let's say that your brother or sister has a bag of gummy bears in their room, right, and it's your bag, and you leave your room, and your brother or sister goes in the room, takes it, starts to shove them in their mouth, right? And then you find them, oh, they're in trouble, and where do you take them? You take them to mom or dad, right? And there you stand with your brother or sister. You know, just imagine just gummy bears flowing out of the pockets and it's in their mouth. You're like, look, mom, look, look what they did. These were mine. They took them. And your mom or dad says, I, I see it, but you are absolutely righteous. No penalty. <clears throat> what would you be doing over here if you were your, <laughs> those were your gummy bears, Right? you would immediately be in uproar, right? This isn't fair. You know, this past week, um, reflecting on the trial that was on Tuesday, the verdict, I was, I was driving home uh, with my eldest daughter, and I was sharing with her that when I was her age, there was another trial. It's when Rodney King uh, was beaten by four police officers, and they were brought before a jury, and they were acquitted. And L.A. was an inferno. Right? How can... You understand why that's, that, why that's problematic, right? How can these four who did that be acquitted? Well, how about... I mean, we, we've gone from, like, the family, like, situation where it's not fair. We've gone to, like, a society level of, like, what's not fair... How, in the world, can we get on a cosmic scale, how can God do that towards guilty sinners? That's really the question. How can He declare right those who are unrighteous? Do you see how problematic that is? This is the tension that has to be answered here. And the key to understanding this is what Jesus has accomplished. There's two aspects. And the first is his perfect life. Um, it's actually hinted at, um, it's alluded to in, the, in verse 21. He, Paul says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Um, do you remember a, a few weeks ago we were talking about this, where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew five seventeen, he says, I have not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. And if you remember after that section, Jesus goes into this, basically, he goes through these commandments and he actually digs deeper. He gets to the heart level. He says, in you know, one way, like, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you committed adultery. If you say rakah or say someone is worthless in that sense, you are guilty of murder because of your anger. And you read through these things, there's no way we could fulfill this. And yet the scriptures say, actually, Jesus did. There's a moment in John 8, where Jesus looks at the religious Pharisees of the day, and he basically, he says this, which of you can prove me guilty of sin? And here's what's remarkable about Jesus. You you look at his life. It's impeccable, but think about this. When you think about the person that always does what's right, you know how they're like just so like uppity, like just self-righteous, but you don't see that from Jesus. You have Jesus spending time with sinners Humble, compassionate, empathetic, yet speaking truth to power. His life is impeccable. Read it. Look at it. And the scriptures say that he perfectly fulfilled the law. He, in his 33 plus years, he earned a real righteousness. He met the standard. That's point one. That's the key to understanding this first part. But the second is the other side of the coin. What about the negative? What about being absolved of the charges? And for that, Paul takes us to another venue, a temple. Because in verse 25, Paul says this. Speaking about Jesus, he says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. It's it's the venue of a temple, of of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's not the clean and sanitary meat section in your grocery store. It's bloody. In Leviticus, where it kind of unpacks this Old Testament sacrificial system, at the center of the book is the Day of Atonement. It's where the high priest, one day a year, would take a goat and another goat, and one he would sacrifice. He would kill it, and he'd sprinkle the blood over the atonement cover in the Holy of Holies, in God's presence. The other, he'd confess his sins and send it away. But this is what was being communicated then. For God's justice and his mercy to meet It meant a life for a life, a substitute. And the term propitiation by His blood, it's not an animal that was sacrificed. It's Jesus' death on the cross. That's where all those sacrifices were pointing towards. And that term propitiation, it means this. It means to satisfy God's wrath towards sin. I, listen, as I say that, I, I know I need to do a couple things. We need to do a timeout because at this point, th- this can seem problematic for a couple reasons. Because there can conjure up a couple mischaracterization, mischaracterizations of who you might think God is. And the first is what I would just call kind of the anger management God. Um, I know not all of you are like Office fans, but all I can think about is that one episode in The Office where Andy Bernard gets really upset, and he can't control it, and he just pounds his fist through the wall, and basically because of that, he has to go to anger management. When you hear about God's wrath towards sin, about him, his anger need to be satisfied, I think oftentimes you can mischaracterize God as this kind of like God who kind of flies off the cuff, gets angry at small things. But this is a distortion. The scriptures actually say he is slow to anger. And his wrath is not because he's having a bad day. One author writes it this way. It is his unrelenting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. Listen, if you get rid of God's wrath, I want to submit to you, you have a greater problem. Because it means wherever you look out in this world and you say that's not right, it means you have no case. It's just your opinion. The scriptures hold this intention. And you can hear this. When you look at the cross and the propitiation, this is what you need to see it is God withholding, um, excuse me, upholding his unrelenting anger toward our sin, while also communicating his unrelenting mercy toward those who have sinned against him. Those two are tied together. But secondly, I would say the other mischaracterization is kind of the cajoling God. In other words, when we talk about God's anger being satisfied on the cross, one of the things that can happen is we can begin to think that, you know, maybe God the Father needed his arm twisted to love us. Um... Think about it this way. It's like the brother who forces his sister to do his laundry for a month as a payment for tattling on him, right? It's like after the month's done and the laundry's been done, then finally, then finally he'll be okay with his sister. But John Stott writes this: God's love is the source, not the consequence. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. Notice it says in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation. God the Father put his son forward and the son humbly obeyed. This is God willingly do that. PT Forsyth puts it this way. He puts it so well. He says, God's feeling toward us never changed, never need to be changed. But God's treatment of us, God's practical relation to us, that had to change. Imagine it this way. Imagine for a moment the image of a judge who is sentencing his own son. And it's clear that his son is guilty. He can't disregard what his son has done. There is an objective reality that must be tendered, that must be paid, and yet what did, he loves his son. And so what does he do? He pays the price. The, the payment of the price didn't create the love. It was the result of it. It was, excuse me, it was the source of it. There's a um right after the second part. verse 25. Look at what it says at the end here. Verse 26, excuse me. It was to show the righteousness of the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What's happening there? It's saying this. Remember the original problem? How can God declare unrighteous people Righteous. This is the answer. How can God be just? Because of his son's perfect life and because of his son's sacrificial death. That's how he can be righteous. That's how he can withhold his justice. So, how do we get it? How do we get it? Look at verse 24. and are justified by His grace as a gift. It's a gift. Think about that for a moment. It's a gift. Have you ever gotten a gift? (laughs) I mean, what do you do with a gift? You just receive it. And notice here how it says it's justified by his grace as a gift. The the motive, the the reason for the gift is grace. You know, let me quote the great theologian Bono here. It's um, one of his interviews. Years ago, he said this. He said, you see, at the center of all religions (coughs) is the idea of karma. (coughs) You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, Or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. He says, it's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet along comes this idea called grace, to upend all that as you reap so that you sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions. Which he says, in my case, is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. That God offers this gift of righteousness in Jesus. And here's how you receive the gift it's faith. It's not you doing. Listen to that. It's not you doing. It's already been done. It's faith. It's receiving. It's relying. On Christ. It's saying this to God. Something like this. God, treat me on the basis of your son Jesus. That's where I place my trust. My confidence in his perfect life on my behalf and his sacrificial death on my behalf. That's how you receive it. And when you do, God justifies you. It means he declares you righteous in his sight. Let me just offer a couple different thoughts here in terms of where you might be here this morning. If you're not a Christian, let me just make it clear. It, it's a gift to be received by faith. What, what is holding you back? Think of a couple things. I think for some of you, it might just be fear. You might say something like, Pastor, if you knew what I've done... I don't, I don't think like he would let me have it. And I would just implore you to look at the cross because it's there where you see his unrelenting justice met by his unrelenting mercy. That's how God loves. It is his loved one that knows you all the way down, even more than you know yourself, and yet still loves you has offered up his son. But I think the second obstacle sometimes for non-Christians is just pride. There's, like, you can't come pridefully into this, you know, like, to receive an undeserved gift like this, this is extravagant, right? I mean, most of us, we, we, we get a really nice gift, like, from a friend for a birthday, and you're like, okay, how much was that? And their birthday, I better get this amount. Do you know what I mean? And that's, that's how we treat this idea in terms of when we, when we hear about this gift from God. But this is a free gift. And that means, it means to lay down your deadly doing, To try to earn. And to find your rest in the one who has laid down his life for you. All right. Lastly, for the Christian, um, listen to what Jerry Bridges, what he says happens upon this declaration. This is where he writes, that it is God sees us legally as so covered with Christ that what he did, we did. When he lived a life of perfect obedience it is as if we had lived a life of a perfect obedience. When he died on the cross to satisfy the just demands of God's law, it is just as if we had died on that cross. Um, there's two things, two implications of what that does to a Christian. And it actually, it, it's, it's oftentimes we think about this like future, like you know, when I die and I meet God, whatever, but, but this has present-day implications here. Um, the first is it humbles us. Look at verse 27, it says this, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Um, When you place your trust in Christ and you're counted as having perfectly obeyed the law in Christ and having perfectly acquitted and a pardon because of sins because of what Christ has done, there is no room for boasting anymore, right? There just isn't. There's no reason to look down on others. And what's interesting, this section, Paul is getting into this part where this relationship in the Roman church between Jews and Gentiles And it's this idea that the Jews might have a little bit more of a swagger, like, hey, we're a little bit better than you. And Paul is saying, if you're finding your hope in the cross, then guess what? Your boasting's gone. In other words, listen to me, this changes your relationships horizontally. Like, this changes the relationships in the congregation. Boasting's gone. I remember years ago, in one of our city groups, there was, and we always have a a mix in these groups, but I remember there was one person who had never grown up in the church, had lived, by all standards, just, you know, a a very uh, immoral life, and they knew it. And the other side of the room, there was someone who grew up in the church, you know, and they're the person that had, like, put their trust in Christ at a very young age, and like the worst thing they had done, you know, like they could remember, was like stealing a pencil. I mean, something like that, right? And there these two were, and I remember talking to the one individual, and they're just like, who, who had just become a Christian. And, and they're talking about how it's just weird hanging out with this person over here. But see, that's the beauty of the cross, because it creates a community where, the, where our identity is no longer based in our performance. It's based in another, and that means we can welcome anybody. And there's no room for swagger in the church, because guess what? Our performance isn't in us. It's in what Christ has done. It creates humility. It creates love. It creates a place where you can, no matter where you're coming from, what your week has been like, if you are in Christ, and this this this, this will radically alter you, how you relate to others. You are no more righteous than them. And actually, you're absolutely righteous because it's what Christ has done. And secondly, firstly it gives us humility and that changes our relationships with one another, but secondly, it gives us a great confidence. I mean, think about this for a moment. This this statement staggered me every time I read it. Christian, do you realize this? You will never be more righteous in God's sight than you are right now. Let me say that again. Christian, positionally, today, in relationship to God, because of your faith in Christ, you will never be more righteous in His sight than you are today. And this is an important distinction because we'll talk about sanctification in weeks to come. That is progressive, but we're talking positionally. You are justified. You will never be more righteous in God's sight than you are right now. Listen, do you feel like right now, like you're on a treadmill in your Christian life? Do you feel like you're ne- you never please God? Do you feel like your performance the past week, oh man, I, I usually get time in God's word, like pretty consistently, I blew this last week, he's probably frowning at me, or maybe there's a pattern of sin that you've been maybe a little bit victorious in and, and now you just, you stepped in it again. Do you understand? Because of the work of Christ, because of justification, because of the work of his son, you will never be more righteous than you are right now, positionally. And see, this is why, listen to me, this is why you need the gospel every day. This is why I need the gospel every day, because as you get up tomorrow morning, understand this, live from that, that you are accepted. There's no condemnation in Christ. Man that will light you, man that will change you. So, but now, those are some significant words, aren't they? But now, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. All eyes are on him. Get your eyes off yourself. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. And live. This is why Augustus to in his hymn, Rock of Ages, puts in these words. I'll close with this. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks this morning for the gift of righteousness. Lord, um, we pray that you would help us to lay our deadly doing down, that we might look to your son in his perfect life. Lord, in the midst of the shame and guilt that we may feel, would you help us to see your unrelenting mercy in your son Jesus has perfectly absolved us of all that we deserve? And Lord, we are grateful today that it is not Your love is not a result of the cross. Rather, it's the source. Help us to believe it. Help us to live it, we pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, amen.